Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast, a deep dive rewatch podcast, spending time with America's favorite radio station, WKRP in Cincinnati. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm his wife, Donna. This is a week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. We're getting into the trivia, the characters, and the details that have made WKRP one of America's favorite syndicated sitcoms for nearly 40 years. So, fellow babies, don't touch that dial. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to the WKRP cast. We've hit the end of season number one. Donna, what is our episode today? We're going to be talking about Preacher. The air date was the 4th of June, 1979. Written by Hugh Wilson and Bill Dial. Story editors, Tom Chihok, Blake Hunter, and Bill Dial. Directed by Michael Zinberg. Andy and Mr. Carlson must deal with an intimidating ex-wrestler, now religious, broadcaster whose merchandising during his show is getting out of hand. A cast note, there's no herb or less in this episode, so that means no bandage report or fashion alert during the podcast. This episode, Preacher, although it is the last episode of the first season, was actually the third episode they shot. That happened on August 11th of 1978. Thanks to Jamie Schmidt, L.A. Jamie, for finding that shoot date. We wanted to know why it didn't air until the end of the season. According to Tom Chihok and others with whom we've talked, the network didn't have a lot of faith in this episode. Get it? A lot of faith? Get it? They didn't think it was funny enough. We disagree. We start the episode out in the studio. Johnny is at the mic, and we hear the song, Just What I Needed, by the Cars. Johnny has just dropped some antacids into a cup of water, and he's eating cold pizza from a box. We got a lot of stuff happening right here at the top, and I think the first thing we need to hop on is Alka-Seltzer. That's what Johnny's plopping into the cup. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. Alka-Seltzer is an effervescent antacid that's been around since 1931. It's a mix of bicarb, citric acid, and aspirin all pressed into a tablet. Alka-Seltzer was a marketing machine from the start. They had already had had some popular catchphrases like I can't believe I ate that whole thing. Try it. You like it. And Mamma Mia, that's a spicy meat board. But nothing was as big a hit as their mid-70s Alka-Seltzer Plop, plop, fizz, fizz Oh, what a relief it is. I thought this was kind of cool. The original dose of Alka-Seltzer was one tablet. In the early 60s, they noticed a huge jump in sales after, for some reason, they showed a commercial with two tablets dropped in the water. They decided from then on the dose would be two tablets, and they were able to claim the distinctive plop-plop. The plop-plop-fizz-fizz campaign was created by Madison Avenue ad exec Paul Margulies, who is the father of actress 
Juliana Margulies. The jingle was composed by Tom Dawes, a former member of The Circle. You might remember those are the guys who had a hit in 1966 with Red Rubber Ball. Yeah, the worst is over now. The morning sun is shining like a red rubber ball. The new jingle was introduced in 1976. It was so popular, in 1978, Sammy Davis Jr. did an extended big band version. Pass, pass, plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Ooh, what a really fit is. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Ooh, what a really fit is. Alka-Seltzer, Alka-Seltzer. The slogan was altered to plink, plink, fizz, fizz in the United Kingdom because plop is commonly used slang for excrement by the Brits. (laughs) According to Advertising Age magazine, plop, plop, fizz, fizz is the 13th most popular advertising campaign of the 20th century. The other big thing going on there right at the top of the episode is that song, The Cars, Just What I Needed. The Cars are an American rock band that formed in Boston in 1976. Tall and gangly Rick Ocasek is quite famously the Cars' front man, but this song was actually sung by bassist Benjamin Orr. It was written by Ocasek. I don't mind coming here Wasting all my time when you're standing oh so near I kind of lose my mind It's not the perfume that you wear It's not the ribbons in your Originated as a demo tape played on Boston radio station WCOZ. That tape also contained a cut of My Best Friend's Girl. Just What I Needed was released as the band's first single from their self titled debut album in the fall of 1978. The song was inspired by an original Twilight Zone episode called What You Need from 1959. It's about an old man who sits in a bar and he knows what everyone who comes into the bar needs before they need it. Just What I Needed peaked at number 27 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. Johnny starts up another song, sits back, closes his eyes, waiting for the Alka-Seltzer to kick in. Now, if you were watching in 1979... The song Johnny goes into is I'm Down by the Beatles. If you're following along on the Shout Factory disc, that's definitely not I'm Down by the Beatles. The Shout Factory was not able to relicense I'm Down. Instead, you heard this. When I should have heard this. You tell lies, thinking I can't see. You can't cry, cause you're laughing at me. I'm down. Was written by Paul McCartney, credited to Lennon McCartney, 
and first released as the B-side to the single Help, the 19th of July, 1965. McCartney told writer Barry Miles that the song and his vocal style on it were influenced by Little Richard. McCartney said, I used to sing his stuff, but there came a point when I wanted one of my own, so that's when I wrote I'm Down. Man buys ring, woman throws it away. Same old thing happen every day. I'm down. I'm really down. Although it was never a big hit for them, the Beatles used I'm Down to close concerts in their final year as a live act. Jennifer walks into the studio without even opening his eyes. Johnny senses she's in the room and sits up, turning the sound down in the studio. Jennifer's putting something up on the bulletin board. And this kind of goes along with what we saw early in the first season, those bits where Johnny would come up behind Jennifer and she'd know he was there. Now here's Johnny with Jennifer coming up behind him. But I've got a theory. I think Jennifer just probably smells really good. And when she comes in the room... (laughs) It's going to be, a, It's a, you're aware of it, I think. So she looks like she smells good. I think probably so. I'm just kind of get there. There's a there's a wafting of some kind of wind song or something around her. So then how do you her. explain uh, she knows when Johnny was coming up behind her without even looking? I think Johnny also has an aroma <laughs> that maybe not as pleasant as Jennifer's, but yeah, you know when Johnny's around too. It's that uh, aftershave. What is it? Comedy the, aftershave. Comedy aftershave. Or that's what he has. Ooh, day DJ, I think, might be the, <laughs> the scent we're talking about here. Jennifer has a request for Johnny. Would you do something for me? Oh, maybe. <laughs> and I don't particularly care if I live through it. I'm serious, Johnny. So am I. She explains that nobody is in yet, and she needs help fastening a button on the back of her dress. You can see his hands trembling and shaking uncontrollably as he works to put the button through the buttonhole. I am a doctor. (laughs) you got to remember, he was pretty hungover. I think he was shaky anyway. Well, and I also noticed the button is at the back of Jennifer's neck, and when she lifts her hair up, it all lifts up in one piece like it's all just molded together giant yes hair sprayed (laughs) clump goes right up there jennifer looks around the studio and makes the comment is this place always a mess yes and that gets johnny going he starts picking up the papers they're all scattered around and he's throwing stuff in the trash i think it's the reverend pembroke and those religious fanatics that come in here on sundays i don't know I get the feeling they're sacrificing small virgins. (laughs) Jennifer gets an odd look in her eye after he makes this comment. And I don't know if she's just done with the conversation or she was offended by the small virgins comment or what it was. But we also kind of noticed it seemed a little bit like an airheaded Jennifer there. I have to go now. Yes, rather than say, I better get back to my desk or I I have work to do. She says that and it. It also had a different, I don't know, a different voice quality or a different inflection. It just didn't sound like Jennifer. And I look at this episode thinking, okay, it's the third one they shot. We might still be dialing in the character of Jennifer here. Might still be developing, yes. Johnny follows Jennifer out into the lobby. We do get an interesting shot down the hallway that we aren't used to seeing from early in the first season. He's chattering on about how he thinks they need to talk more. People don't communicate. uh, They need to get together. They get into the lobby area, and Jennifer walks over to that wall monitor right there by the door in and turns up the volume to let Johnny hear the tail end of his song going. 
think it's very Every sad. DJ's nightmare. Oh, it's horrible. It's the worst sound in the world. Johnny takes off running back towards the studio. Now, if you're watching the Shout Factory discs, this is the end of the cold open, and the theme music plays. We found a difference in openings. The Big D, Dale Kovar has an original syndication package of the series from the 1980s. Dale said in the syndication episode, you see the original show opening with the traffic and the radio tuner. In that version, instead of going into the theme at this point, this scene just continues with Art Carlson arriving in the lobby. Dale believes the continuous action with the opening at the beginning was probably only put out in the syndication package. This new cold open, like you see on the Shout Factory disc, would have been necessary since after the hiatus, that's the one that would have appeared on the network. WKRP in Cincinnati. So coming back, we are now in the lobby, and as you said, Mr. Carlson enters the lobby. He's just arriving. Jennifer comments that he's earlier than usual. Yeah, well, I got a big day ahead of me. Uh, Hold all the calls, uh, no visitors. Is it in there? Yes, sir, it came this morning. Carlson runs into his office all excited when he hears this. Last time he had something in his office, it was that life raft that he inflated (laughs) on his desk. He's a little worried about this. Bailey enters. Bailey asked Jennifer how her weekend was. Jennifer says it was quiet. Rhett is out of town. And who's Rhett? He's the wholesale appliance king of Western Ohio. He's not very tall, but I've got three microwave ovens so far. (laughs) You want one? Bailey says no thank you. Jennifer continues. How about a popcorn popper or a trash masher? How long have you been dating this guy? About a week. We see Jennifer holding a Billboard magazine dated March 25th of 1978. This seems to be a holdover prop from the pilot. The pilot was shot on March 24th of 78, and the dates on the new billboard are always ahead by a week. Thanks to L.A. Jamie for tracking down those dates. And he enters. He wants to know if there are any messages. Jennifer hands him a pile that are all complaints. And he seems to know the source. They're all about the same thing. The Reverend Little Ed Pembroke in his toe-to-toe with Satan, Church of the Mighty Struggle. And he says... I love that church. (laughs) And he says that he'd like to get the guy off the air, but he can't get Carlson to discuss it. Jennifer says she can't blame Mr. Carlson and asks if Andy has ever met the Reverend. Oh, I've never had the pleasure, but I've certainly heard him. So we don't have any herb or less in this episode, but we've got guest stars aplenty. Three gentlemen walk into the lobby. Jennifer asks if she can help them. Uh, we have an appointment with your Mr. Carlson. Jennifer explains that that can't be right. Mr. Carlson doesn't make appointments, and the uh, first guy in the group takes off his overcoat to reveal a priest collar, and the father asks, Are you calling us liars? The priest explains that they are from the Greater Cincinnati Interreligious Council and that they wrote Mr. Carlson a letter two weeks ago. The only mail the big guy ever opens is the kind that says, You may already be a winner. We also saw in Turkey's Away that they don't hand art a whole lot of mail either. So these guys go on to explain it was a letter of concern about the Sunday morning religious programming. Andy asks if this is about Reverend Pembroke, and they say that it is. Please stop right this way. I'm sure Mr. Carlson would be delighted to see you. (laughs) Of course, without knocking, he leads them right into Carlson's office. So we head into Art's office and we find out what Art was waiting for. It's an exercise bike. Art is on it and he's oriented so that he's facing away from his door. 
Well, Andy walks in with the three interfaith religious council representatives in tow and starts talking to Art while he can't see them. Tell him I'm busy, will you? I'm tired of you and your weird old friends. We did a little research on exercise bicycles, and we found that the ancestors of modern stationary bicycles date back to the end of the 18th century. The gymnasticon was an early example. Some models, like the one Art is riding, have movable handlebars, so your upper body gets a workout, too. Most have mechanisms that provide resistance to the pedals to increase intensity of the exercise. Exercise bicycles are used to increase general fitness, weight loss, and for physical therapy. Andy tells Mr. Carlson that he thinks he should speak with these gentlemen. <laughs> Who you got with you this time, Three Stooges. Andy continues and says... They're from the Interreligious Council. Oh, Lord. And they're with me right now. In this room? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) (laughs) And Father O'Reilly asks him to please stop saying that. Yeah, not the best thing to be saying in the presence of the three religious leaders. Our three religious leaders are the Rabbi Fishback, who's being played by Jeremiah Morris. Rabbi Fishback. He was born in 1929 in New York City as Jerome Maurice Gomberg. Jeremiah was an actor and director, Some of his TV appearances include Quincy, Emmy, and Cheers. In the movies, he was in Meet the Fockers in 2004. He has a total of 18 acting credits. Other notables, Frazier, Becker, and Mad About You. Jeremiah Morris passed away in 2006 in Culver City, California. Father O'Reilly is played by Arthur Mallet. Father O'Reilly. He was born Vivian Arthur Rivers Mallet in England in 1927. He immigrated to the U.S. in the 1950s. Arthur has 139 acting credits from 1964 to 1998. His appearances on television include episodes of The Donna Reed Show. The Rifleman. Adventures in Paradise, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Perry Mason, Bewitched, and The Virginian. He was also in Disney's Mary Poppins in 1964. Arthur played a vagrant who claimed to have stolen Aunt Bee's pin on The Andy Griffith Show in 1966. And our final representative of the Interfaith Council is the Reverend Drinkwater, being played by John Chappell. Reverend Drinkwater. He was born in 1939 as John Frederick Chappell in North Carolina. He has 43 acting credits. He's known for Brubaker, After MASH, and he also was on the new WKRP in Cincinnati. Other TV appearances include Charlie's Angels, Quincy, M.E., Simon and Simon, and Matlock. John Chappell died in 2015. So, basically, this walking setup to a joke introduced themselves. Well, Art can't resist. Catholic, Protestant, and Jew all together. (laughs) Isn't that nice? And this is where we find out that Art is Presbyterian. You might think a Catholic priest with an Irish brogue is lazy casting, a Father Flanagan stereotype. We don't know if it was an accident or intentional, but it's more accurate than you think. Cincinnati was a major destination for immigrants from Ireland who were starving as a result of the potato famine beginning in the mid-1840s. By 1850, the Irish population of the Queen City had grown to a point that St. 
Patrick's Church on 3rd and Mill Streets was dedicated. The church was staffed entirely by Irish priests to serve the growing Irish population in Cincinnati, a tradition that continued for decades. Although they may have just gotten lucky, Father O'Reilly appears to be pretty accurate for a Cincinnati priest. Father O'Reilly says they've come to talk about the man who calls himself Reverend Little Ed. Carlson acts like he can't quite place the name. He broadcasts on your station. (laughs) Golly, Rabbi, you're right. He's the rabbi. You say that like maybe it's not so hot to be a rabbi. I think it's a very nice thing for a Jewish person to be. Maybe we should all go into the country and look for a nice lake and dunk one another. (laughs) Gentlemen, uh, behave ourselves. We don't need Rome to tell us how to act. That's for sure. They ask Carlson when little Ed is going to be taken off the air, and Carlson explains that... Oh, little Ed has a two-year contract, and his hands are tied. Reverend Drinkwater, who is sporting a pretty serious leisure suit, suggests that maybe Carlson could talk to little Ed. And he thinks that little Ed might listen to reason. Art doesn't agree. You see, little Ed's uh, crazy. Well, Andy says they can't have crazy people on the air. They're going to have to get rid of the whole staff. (laughs) That pretty much... Includes everyone. They're, they're all going up <laughs> here. He's out the station. Yeah. The priest tells Carlson that they are not there to point the blame at anyone. This Ed fellow, he's a gunner for a schnook. <laughs> Maybe I can interpret that. Uh, what Brother Fishback is saying is that the Reverend Little Ed may be a wolf in sheep's clothing, a stumbling block to the weak, yea, even the bomb unto the wicked. Let me interpret that. <laughs> Well, we feel that little Ed has overstepped the bounds of good taste, good sense, and uh, good religion. Now, while they may have all interpreted each other, we wanted to interpret the rabbi. He says two words there in Yiddish, ganef and schnook. Ganef comes from an old Hebrew word meaning thief. In Yiddish, the word became ganev. In the mid-19th century, that became the current ganef used by the rabbi. The more modern definition of a ganef is a dishonest or disreputable person. Schnook is also Yiddish, but it's much more modern than ganef. The origin of schnook comes from a German word that means small sheep. The Yiddish means fool. Schnook wasn't used until the 1920s. That's not to mention all the money he's been taking in. Well, this is all news to Mr. Carlson. John the Baptist shower curtains? The Sermon on the Mount batting helmets? He calls them religious artifacts. Can you imagine the writer's room sitting around coming up with these things? (laughs) I think that probably was an afternoon, just coming up with products for Little Ed to be pitching. (laughs) The priest suggests that the FCC might be interested to hear what he's been up to. Andy tells him that that won't be necessary. He will get Little Ed on the phone and straighten things out. So Art offers to show them out, and he cannot resist. See, listen, before you guys leave, you heard the one about the priest, the rabbi, and the Baptist preacher? (laughs) And that does not go over well with the Interreligious Council leaders, although the audience seemed to enjoy it. (laughs) I wanted to hear the joke. (laughs) Carlson asks Andy to take care of this for him as he walks the three visitors out. We transition to Andy's office. We know that we are early, early, early in season one because they're behind Andy's desk 
is that Kiss poster. Johnny is asleep on Andy's couch, and Venus is standing back there by the file cabinets looking through record albums when Andy enters. Behind Venus, we see a Richard Pryor album. It is very definitely his groundbreaking 1974 release, That N-Word's Crazy. It's an entirely spoken word comedy album. It won the Grammy for Comedy Album of the Year in 1975, but it's not music, and it's not something that the FCC would even allow on the air. We're thinking it might be here as a shout-out from Tim Reed to his former boss and a comedy mentor. Tim Reed worked on a couple of episodes of The Richard Pryor Show in 1977. And he tells them that they need to leave because he has a meeting. No problem, Andy. I'll just go get a stretcher for Johnny. Yes, we remember Johnny had a rough morning. Yes, he did. Venus asks who the meeting is with, and Andy tells him with Reverend Pembroke. We better be getting out of here fast. When Andy explains that he's going to fire little Ed, Venus tells him that little Ed weighs about 300 pounds. Why do they call him little Ed? Because his wife is big Ed. Uh, Suddenly, this mission doesn't seem so easy on Andy's part. Andy tells Venus he'll just have to reason with him. Venus says, I don't think so. Little Ed used to be a professional wrestler. How was Andy not aware of this information? He's clueless, yeah. isn't he? Venus then tells Andy, I saw him throw a haystack Calhoun out of the ring once. Haystack weighed about 500 pounds at the time. The lead stuck his head through a soda pop machine. And I didn't even know that Haystack Calhoun was a real person. I did, because I used to watch wrestling back in the 70s. I remember (laughs) Haystack. His opponent in this match, ladies and gentlemen, from Morgan's Corner, Arkansas, weighing 625 pounds, Haystack's Calhoun! Ladies and gentlemen, Haystack Calhoun making his appearance now into the arena here at the Cincinnati Gardens. Keller Brooks meeting the giant man from Morgan's Corner, Arkansas. Haystack Calhoun was born in 1934 in Texas as William D. Calhoun. Haystack grew up big. By age 14, he was 300 pounds. In his early 20s, Haystack had hit 600 pounds. He broke into wrestling in 1955 at the age of 21. He went by the ring names Country Boy Calhoun, Haystacks, and Haystacks Calhoun. He first appeared nationally on Art Linkletter's House Party, a televised variety show where Calhoun tossed full bales of hay into a high loft resulting in his nickname. You ever wonder if wrestling's a show? Well, yeah, Haystack kind of uh, illustrates that. He decided to exaggerate his hillbilly persona by adopting the fictional birthplace of Morgan's Corner, Arkansas, while sporting a bushy beard, a white T-shirt, blue overalls, and a genuine horseshoe <laughs> around his neck on a chain. Was the horse attached? Yeah, it could have been. <laughs> I think he ate the horse and kept the shoe. His weight and declining health forced him into retirement in the mid-1970s. And running around at 600 pounds, not a good idea for your health. Haystacks died in 1989 at the very young age of 55. Wow, we I got the devil on the run. <laughs> 
Little Ed is here, and what an entrance. That is a top ten entrance. That is how to come onto a set. Johnny was asleep on the couch, but when Little Ed entered, he just about crawls over the back of the couch. He's clinging to the back of his nails, clung. Say what? That is so big and so fast and happens. It's such an explosive kind of thing. I remember thinking, whoa, hold it. I want to go back and look at that again. Yes. When he comes in, Johnny moves up on the... It's it's so much it's, fun. It's great to watch. And then Venus is backed up against a table. Travis is sitting ramrod straight in his chair with his mouth hanging open. Little Ed has arrived. Little Ed is being played by Michael Keenan, who was born in Los Angeles in 1939. He died in April of 2020 at the age of 80, and we should mention in the age of COVID, his death was not COVID-related. Michael Keenan appeared in more than 100 stage productions throughout his career, including shows at the San Diego Shakespeare Festival, Seattle Repertory Theater, the Mark Taper Forum, the Amundsen Theater, and the South Coast Repertory. On television, one of Keenan's best-known performances was playing the mayor in the CBS television series Picket Fences. He has 43 acting credits and one producer credit. Keenan's television credits include recurring and guest roles on Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and Star Trek Voyager, as well as Cheers, Dallas, Hill Street Blues, and Quincy M.E. Keenan taught acting and directing at the University of Southern California for more than 25 years. He retired from acting in 2015. Well, little Ed spots Johnny on the couch. Well, little brother, have no fear. The Reverend Ed is here. The devil can run, but he can't hide. Sooner or later, he's got to come out, and then you know what I'm going to do? No. I'm going to twist him. I'm going to chop him. I'm going to break him in two. For the devil is no match for little Ed and the Church of the Mighty Struggle. Amen. Which of you boys is Travis? Johnny and Venus point to Andy, still with his mouth hanging open at his desk. Why, you scared little Ed mighty bad on the phone. Andy is turned white as a sheet. He can't catch his breath, and he even has trouble getting this little line out. Sorry. Little Ed is an overpowering presence, and he has just shut everybody down. Little Ed asks Andy what this is all about, this taking him off the air. Andy kind of explains through a dry mouth that he thought they would talk things over. Talk away. I am at your service. I am the wrestler for truth. I am the grappler for good. I am the man in the tag team match with the powers of darkness. No offense. <laughs> Little Ed has turned to Venus at the end of that line, and Venus takes this opportunity to excuse himself. He has had enough of the Reverend Little Ed. Andy, um, I think, uh, I don't know. I'll probably go buy a car or something. <laughs> Bye, Reverend. The Reverend compliments him on his outfit. Venus thanks him, and he sprints out the door into the hallway. I loved it. Little Ed commented on Venus's outfit, and I so wish we had Herb in this episode because I think those two guys could talk fashion. <laughs> they could. Oh, man. They've got the white, both wear the white belt and white shoes. Andy tells the Reverend that they've been getting lots of complaints about his show. This doesn't phase Little Ed, obviously. Of course, he's been getting lots of complaints for years. I've been looking over your contract here, and I think we have a sufficient reason to, uh... To what? 
Avoid it. Little Ed is not happy about this. He shoves Andy's desk to the side and backs Andy against the wall, his belly pressing against Andy's. Are you aware of the forces you're dealing with? I am. <laughs> he has him pinned to the wall with his <laughs> gut. Andy asks Little Ed if he's willing to make any changes in his show, and Little Ed tells him no. Well, then I'm afraid that you're gonna have to go. <laughs> now, I just love the visual as he's got Andy pinned against the wall. Andy is ramrod straight, and he looks so thin, but you see his the side view of his Adam's apple moving up and down. And <laughs> Little Ed is like a menacing cherub. He seems so kind of non-threatening, but then threatening all at the same time. Well, then there is only one thing for me to do. What? Go see the head man. <laughs> and Johnny, who has been on the couch watching this all go down... You can see him? <laughs> Johnny misinterprets head man. Little Ed heads out of Andy's office on his way to see Carlson. So we cut into Carlson's office. Art still on his exercise bike. He is logging some miles on that new bike. When little Ed bursts in... Mr. Carlson! <laughs> a great visual. Art stands up on the pedals and starts pedaling faster like he is trying to race away from something. Carlson gets off the bike and shakes little Ed's hand and asks him how his sisters are. My sisters are fine. They're waiting for me down in the Honda. <laughs> and I like the visual of all of them in a Honda. Well, and we have not met the sisters yet. We're going to meet the sisters uh, shortly here and picturing all of them in a Honda, especially a 70s era Honda, is be a lot of fun. So little Ed tells Carlson, this little fella says you want me off the air. And Andy tells him if he's not willing to make any changes, that's what will happen. I'll sue. I might even do worse than that. Okay, so what do you think worse than that is the... The uh, soda machine? Uh, yeah, having yeah. your head jammed into a soda machine or your back broken. Something or... <laughs> bad happening. I don't know. So Carlson asks them both to sit down so they can discuss these things reasonably. And he walks over to Art's chair. But as he does it, he refuses to turn his back on little Ed. Little Ed slams the door to Art's office loudly, which causes Art to go to his knees. He grabs little Ed's arm and he starts to beg. Don't try anything, little Ed. I don't think I can take anymore. My life is so hard. I, I can't seem to make any money without these strange young men and their strange music. You gonna leave me alone or not? You bet your sweet life we are. <laughs> Little Ed stands up saying, oh, well, there's no problem then. But Andy disagrees. You guys better leave me alone or I am going to rain toads on this station. <laughs> so toads, or actually frogs, is one of the ten plagues of Egypt from the book of Exodus. Frogs are rained down on the population of Egypt by the thousands to try and get Pharaoh to free the Israelites from slavery. Frogs was the second plague after turning water to blood. Some of the other big hits on the top ten plague parade, lice, <laughs> boils, and locusts. Used to tune in the plague parade every Saturday morning. See what the big hits were. Andy tells little Ed that he and Mr. Carlson are not the kind of guys you can push around. We then get this great verbal wordplay between the three of them. No. 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 
Gonna get tough, eh? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah? They are taking one word there and just batting it back and forth. It's almost like an improv game, the way they're doing that. The audio is great, but the visuals make it even funnier. It doesn't seem like a good idea letting Little Ed back on the air because he tells them to be listening to their radios on Sunday because he's got something worse than toads. So he walks out of the office, slams the door, Art shaking with fear. That could be worse than toads. (laughs) Well, it must be Sunday morning in this scene because we're in the studio and we see three rather large women around a mic singing amen but using ahs and mmms. Ah, <laughs> while little ed preaches now what they are humming is actually a traditional gospel song which became a hit in the 60s. It was popularized in the Sidney Poitier film Lilies of the Field in 1963. A hit single version was written by Curtis Mayfield and Johnny Pate in 1964 after Curtis had seen the movie and was inspired by the song. Amen. Amen. Mayfield's group had a hit with Amen in 1964. It reached number seven on the Hot 100. Little Ed's backing group are the Merciful Sisters of Melody, made up of three more guest stars. We don't really know how they're standing there in order. We identified one of them, but the three of them are, we'll start with Mary Steelsmith. Mary debuted as Melody in the Joan Rivers film Rabbit Test in 1978, where Billy Crystal played her brother. Mary was a playwright. She wrote more than 16 plays. She had has nine acting credits. Sister number two being played by Suzanne Kent. Suzanne is an actress and director known for History of the World Part 1, Rugrats, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, and White Fang. And then our sister that we were able to identify is Cynthia Zaghetti. Now, she's on the right with the dark hair and is probably the best known of our three sisters. Cynthia was born in 1949, and she died in 2016 at the age of 66. Cynthia was a member of the Groundlings in Los Angeles, and she taught improv at the Groundlings where she ran their school. She co-founded the Acme Comedy Theater in 1989. Two of her students there were Joel McHale and Conan O'Brien. Cynthia's film credits include I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. And You Light Up My Life from 1977. The Gong Show Movie, 1980. Repo Man. National Lampoon's European Vacation. The Wrong Guys from 1988. And Up Close and Personal, 1996. Some of her television sitcom roles include Give Me a Break. Married with Children. Who's the Boss? Empty Nest. The Norm Show. The King of Queens. And Curb Your Enthusiasm. Most notably, Zagetti played Jerry Seinfeld's former high school girlfriend in a 1991 episode of Seinfeld called The Library. <laughs> In the episode, Seinfeld tracks down Zagetti's character to use her as an alibi for a borrowed book, which he never returned to the New York Public Library. 
No less, no herb, but all of these guest stars. As Little Ed preaches, the sisters chime in every now and then, repeating a word or two, just echoing what Little Ed has said, and they are very good at it. Fellow strugglers, (laughs) it has been a troubled week for Little Ed. I was almost pinned to the mat of despair. Despair, But I rose to struggle against the very management of this station. And yes, they saw the wisdom of my ways. For though they play the heathen hateful noise known to us as the abomination of rock and roll, I will not speak out against them. Praise him. Though they threatened me and tried to cast me out, my lips are sealed. Sealed! Nor will I urge you to inundate this station with cards and letters condemning their actions. No, sir, that is not my way. His way. Amen. For if you are good and true, you will write those letters without my asking. (laughs) And when you do, you might inquire about our Dead Sea Scrolls steak knives. Which are free when you make a love offering of $5 or more. The sisters close out his sermon with a song about getting the devil in a headlock. God, we've got, got the devil. Sing it. Oh, yes, my sister. Transition now to the lobby where Jennifer is presenting Bailey with a new toaster for absolutely no reason. Bailey is very grateful. Jennifer has if one will be enough. I live alone, so one toaster ought to do it. (laughs) Jennifer asks Bailey if she could use a lawnmower, but Bailey tells her that she lives in an apartment. Well, so do I, but I have two riding mowers with the special bag attachment. (laughs) Andy arrives, walking through the lobby, heading back to his office. Jennifer asks if he wants the usual Monday morning complaints. She says that this time there are even a few in favor of Little Ed. That figures. Did you hear his broadcast? At 8 o'clock, Sunday morning? No. Andy's not happy. He says Little Ed made a mockery of the station, but I don't think he should have let him back on the air. Bailey says that she thought Andy was going to get rid of Little Ed. Andy says that the big guy's scared of him, and he is too. But now he is mad, and he is getting him off of KRP. Find his weakness. When Andy asks what weakness... I've never met a man who didn't have one. As Andy leaves, he tells them that if they think of something, to just let him know. So Andy heads on through the door, going back towards the bullpen, and sweet little Bailey screams out... The IRS! Andy hasn't gone very far down the hallway, and suddenly his head comes back around the door, and he asks Bailey to say that again. Oh, I don't know, Andy. It's probably a lousy idea. Oh, come on, Bailey. Now's not the time to get shy on us. Jennifer asks Andy what he thinks. Andy says that it's a pretty mean trick. It's too mean. Good idea, though. It's perfect. Jennifer picks up the phone to call little Ed. You two ought to be ashamed of yourselves. (laughs) The only thing that ever frightened the Church of Scientology was the IRS. It's too mean. We head to Carlson's office, Andy Carlson nervously awaiting the arrival of little Ed. Art asks Andy if he'd like to ride his exercise. Supposed to relieve tension. Of course, all it's ever done for me is make me a little lightheaded and sort of nauseous. Andy's getting a little angry. He thinks little Ed's not going to show up. He's five minutes late. Carlson is ready to get out of there. So he's heading toward the door just as the door opens, which startles both Andy and Mr. Carlson. Hey, man. 
You ought to be used to these outfits by now. For Venus, this is kind of conservative. He's looking sharp in a solid dark gray striped suit with a white shirt, a maroon vest, and a white scarf around his neck. It is under the collar of the jacket, which is very much a 70s-looking kind of thing. And he's topped it all off with a maroon fedora. And he tells Venus that they're waiting for little Ed to arrive. Well, <laughs> I can't even ask about a raise, but it can wait. I'll talk to the people that take over when you guys are gone. Before he heads out the door, Carlson offers him the position of station manager. Good money in that. But Venus says, no way, and he leaves. <laughs> it's ready to hand it over right now. You think he's really going to stick our heads in a soda pop machine? And he tells her they don't have a soda pop machine, thank goodness. Oh, well, maybe our luck's beginning to change. No, it's not. Little Ed enters with a big smile. Well, good morning, little brothers. Are we ready to let bygones be bygones? And Mr. Carlson, who's been hiding by squishing himself up against the bookshelves as much as possible, peeks around at Little Ed. (laughs) That cracked you up every time we watched it. Eventually, we started looking forward to that just because it would make you laugh every time. Oh, I loved it. So Andy tells him... Yesterday was your last show. Little Ed is not happy. He slams Art's door and loses it. Oh, yeah. Little Ed's got to keep his temper. Y'all keep it down. Little Ed's got to stay calm. Oh, yeah, be calm. Little Ed's got to stay cool. Now, hallelujah, be cool. Praise you boys got a soda pop machine around here. No, During this rant, there is some great physical comedy happening. Little Ed has backed Art into his chair. Do I look like I'm crazy to you? Well, I'm not going to that right now. I'm not letting you out of anything. Now, Art's holding on to the arms of his chair. He's all panicked. Andy moves around behind Art's chair. So he's putting Art and his chair between him and Little Ed. Well, Little Ed's not going to let Art be a barrier. He bends down and happens to put his hands on top of Art's hands up by the wrist. Now he's got Art trapped to the chair. Art cannot move his arms at all. It's as if they're strapped to the arms of the chair. He's trying. Oh, he's he is, and he's moving <laughs> and getting some great facial expressions, great physical comedy. He's trying to get his hands loose. Finally, Andy says something that causes little Ed to let go of Art's hands, and oh, it's something big. That is a responsible station whose job it is to make sure its programming is above board. I have no choice but to call for an IRS audit of your nonprofit organization. Little Ed asks if he can sit down for a minute. You boys play hardball, don't you? That is definitely not slow pitch. And he tells him that his show is very offensive to a large population of their listening audience. And when he asks if they would really go through with that threat, Andy shakes his head, "Mm, no. They stay the course for one round of questioning, but then they cave when he asks again, would you really do that? You had me pinned, and now you're going to let me up. But they keep holding it over his head. Little Ed says he really has no choice, so Andy lays it all out for him. There are going to be restrictions. We move your show from 8 o'clock to 6 o'clock a.m. Instead of 60 minutes, you got 30 minutes. Oh, I ask for donations, but no more steak knives, no more shower curtains, no more merchandise of any sort. And if Little Ed resists, Andy reminds him of the IRS, so Little Ed agrees and they shake hands. Little Ed heads for the door to leave the office, telling Andy and Mr. Carlson to go to church every Sunday. All right, do, Little Ed. (laughs) Swear. The door opens and Johnny enters, only to see Little Ed, and he quickly turns to leave, but Little Ed grabs Johnny's wrist. Oh, no. (laughs) Little Ed's gonna mend his ways. 
And he's going to pray for all of you. But most especially, he's going to pray for this little fella here. In the hopes that the Lord will mend this broken body and restore to this man some, if not all, of his faculties. Carlson tells little Ed that that is a tall order. Johnny is like a prop right there for little Ed. He grabs him by the wrist, then he puts an arm up around his neck, and he's, oh, it's it's funny. Little Ed slaps Johnny on the back, knocking him forward, and he leaves the office. And it's here that Johnny takes off his sunglasses, his eyes wide. I can see! He's been healed! We freeze and go to commercial. I got 200 units of the world is coming to an end lawn furniture alone. You know, Little Ed's character, I just love the way he delivers the lines, and I think I mentioned this to you before. If a word ends with a consonant, he gives it another syllable. Little Ed. There's always an uh at the end of it. exclaim. We go to our capper scene in the studio. Art and Andy are in the background. They're watching through the window from the production room. Little Ed has a mic in his hand, and he's ready to preach. His sisters are standing around the mic on a stand, and they're doing their backup tunes. And Little Ed has a new message. This Sunday, my friends, Little Ed has a new policy. No more shower curtains, no more knives, no more merchandise of any kind. But here's an interesting idea. Way back in the Middle Ages, they had these things called indulgences. Indulgences are a real thing that kind of got out of hand in the Catholic Church. An indulgence is a way to reduce the amount of punishment that one has to undergo for sins. That is the teaching. Indulgences have always been granted, and it is part of the doctrine. Now, what Little Ed's talking about is, in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church was selling indulgences to the point that they were supporting charities and hospitals from these things. Now, here's how it worked. You send me. And from this, we head into our closing credits. And they are blue, just like the first eight episodes. That's going to do it for Preacher, and that is going to wrap up season number one. We are all finished with our first 22 episodes. Wow, that went fast. Yeah, it really did, and it's been a lot of fun. Next Tuesday on February 26th, we are going to be capping off season one by playing our full interview with Sparky Marcus Asolio, who played Art Carlson Jr. in Young Master Carlson. Then on March 5th, we're back with the first episode of Season 2 for Love or Money Part 1. After thinking about doing so for quite some time, Bailey finally has the nerve to ask Johnny out on a date. That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes, and thanks for joining us. Got a question? comment or correction let us know about it write us wkrpcast at gmail.com and remember please rate and review us on apple Podcasts. thanks for listening bye may the good news be yours The WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders.
almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger! <laughs> <laughs>